0: So, um, hey Mercy Hill fam, uh, this is just another um, opportunity for us to get some uh, content out your way. Uh, I have the joy of uh, being on a Zoom call with Jake Stone. Jake is a friend of mine from the Gulf Coast and I'm gonna let him introduce himself and we're just gonna, I'm gonna ask him some questions and let him just kind of answer them as he sees fit just for the sake of encouraging us and reminding us also that we have brothers and sisters Um, all around the world. And even in South Mississippi, we've got some sweet friends down there who are like-minded, love the local church, love the gospel and love the preaching of the word as well. So um, Jake, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell me how you came to know the Lord. Tell me about the church you're serving at and tell me about um, just kind of some of the things that y'all have going on. Uh, Maybe not right this second because we're all kind of quarantined and stuff, but uh, just in general. Well, I appreciate the invitation
1: to come and join you, Lawson. Um, We are thankful for our brothers and sisters there at Mercy Hill. Um, Often that we do pray for y'all as we try to do for sister churches, and we're thankful for the work in the kingdom that y'all are doing up there in North Mississippi. Um, So I was raised in a church, and in fact, where I pastor, New Testament Baptist Church, is the church that I grew up in, although it's much different today than what it was then, but I'm very thankful for um, a faithful mom and dad who were dedicated to the Lord and to the church and teaching me the truths of the scriptures as I was growing up. Um, When I was a teenager, when I was, I believe it was 15, is when I really believed that true conversion took place in my life. Um, I was, by all accounts, from what you would observe, a, a good kid, but I can still vividly remember um, the text of the rich young ruler being used in a, in a sermon and being used by the Spirit to really uh, bring conviction into my heart that, that I identified much with the rich young ruler and, and trusting in, in who I was and, and what I did and, and was broken um, by the Spirit into and, and seeing the beauty of Christ. So thankful for his mercy and grace in me, but I grew up in a very fundamentalist and legalistic uh, setting, and, and I would say that contributed to a misunderstanding of what sanctification is and what it looks like and what it means to grow. And, and I've had to learn a lot of, learn a lot and unlearn a lot uh, through the years, but, but God has been very merciful to me. I started pastoring um, when I was 19. So that's been over 11 years now and come a long ways. Uh, As I said, I am at New Testament where I grew up at, just long story short. We've actually really started, it was a revitalization journey that began in August of 2011, um, where we really relaunched the church, started over from scratch is the only way that I know how to put it. And really from, from that starting point till now, it's been a journey from uh, king james onlyism um landmarkism fundamentalism to being a confessionally uh reformed or particular baptist church that subscribes to the 1689 um committed to expository preaching committed to teaching doctrine and the lord has blessed us tremendously we went from three people um when we kind of relaunched to um Before all of this happening, usually on Sundays, having between 45 and 50, seeing people converted by the grace of God, seeing people who were spiritually uh, malnourished and hungry, wanting uh, expositional preaching come, and also desiring to be a part of a local church that values being a family and community of believers. So, um, And one of the things that we just had uh, last month, although it seems like it's been a year ago now, is a conference we put on each year. This was our third year of doing it, entitled the Cary Fuller Conference. Um, If anybody knows me just a little bit they will quickly learn that I'm a history nerd and in particular I love Baptist history and I believe there's much for us to learn from our Baptist forefathers and William Carey and Andrew Fuller are two prime examples of men that have much in the way to teach us and so The conference uh, really is centering on taking Baptist faith or doctrine and practice uh, from a biblical and historical viewpoint and applying those lessons to us today. So this year, for example, our our theme was on uh, covenant theology from a Baptist standpoint. Last year, we looked at the nature of saving faith. Um, I hope and pray that we can do it again next year. Um, we haven't made any definite plans for obvious reasons, but we are thinking about, in some respect, it being tied to ecclesiology, although something will more specific, that's a broad subject, um, but that's what we hope to do. So um, that, that's all that I'll say in that respect. So that's a little bit about me.
0: that's awesome okay so you you gave me like five things i want to talk about um so first off i know that you're a church history guy every time i pull up facebook or something like that you're quoting william Carey or keach or bunyan i know that you've been reading a bunch of bunyan right now um i have been too you just finished what the jerusalem center saved yes that's correct how was that
1: i i think it was a it's a great it's a Part of the Puritan Paperback series from Banner. It's only it's less than 130 pages, and I know sometimes people can feel intimidated by older works, and especially the Puritans. But Bunyan, to me, on the whole, is is an easy and and a joyful read. Mm. And this book, the Jerusalem Center saved. He, he comes at an angle that I've never I've never heard, and I, and I'll be honest, I've never thought about. But as he lays it out, I think it's it's correct. As he goes to Luke chapter 24, verse 47, where Jesus instructs the disciples and says, repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And what Bunyan is sets forth out is that for Jesus to send the disciples to Jerusalem is in itself a display of how marvelous and wondrous the grace of God is, because Bunyan contends that there were no bigger sinners on the planet than those who were in Jerusalem Mm. because they had seen Christ. They had heard Christ. They witnessed his, his ministry and they rejected him. They clamored for his execution. They secured it. And yet where does Jesus and his disciples Bunyan said vengeful man would have sent uh, his emissaries. Jerusalem would have been the last place he would send Mm. them to. But for Christ, he sends his disciples, his ambassadors to Jerusalem, as the first place. And he walks through the the, the text and, and he, and he kind of goes through the book of Acts showing how the apostles ministered in the first half, particularly in Jerusalem. And then he expands upon how, when God saves the biggest sinners, why does he do that? And it's just a really marvelous and encouraging mm-hmm. read. Um, and, and I highly commend it. But Bunyan does a really good job at just really making you see um, how rich the grace of God is and how, and how compassionate our savior is.
0: Mm. Yeah. I, I've been, you know, I intentionally picked up Bunyan when this whole thing started because certainly you and I are sitting in our homes comfortable, you know, I, the quarantine really is not that terrible, but I think about Bunyan being imprisoned and yeah. still aiming to, to shepherd and to care for the flock of God from that distance. And then, you know, even then seeing the, the wonderful work that he produced while in prison um, one that is, in my opinion, second to pretty much no other, um, the Pilgrim's Progress. But, you know, when I think about when I was, you know, just kind of dealing with being separated from my congregation, my first thought went to Bunyan and how he was separated, how he aimed to care for them during that time. And so I just, I've got, I, I keep a couple of my books at my house and my, and my study at home and I keep Bunyan's works because those are the things that I or his works are normally the first thing I picked up, pick up after uh, Spurgeon. I've been, I've been diving into Spurgeon sermons a a good bit lately. Um, Which there's not a bad one. Like I could, you can pick up any Spurgeon, Spurgeon sermon and you're like, well, that was one of the best sermons I've ever read in my life. And then you read the next one. It's like, well, that one may have been better. Um, But certainly. So uh, church history, you, you've, you love, you love, you've been reading some Bunyan. You love uh, Carrie. Tell me, Um, If you have, like, one highlight, I know that's an impossible task, but if there's one thing that stands out to you, just maybe uh, uh, something that's happened in church history, in particular Baptist history, would be great, that stands out to you and has just uh, been impactful.
1: I, I would say, for me personally, more and more understanding just how dramatic the life of William Carey is. And the, from his early life to when he dies in India, I, I would say that William Carey experienced what we would call many smiles, but also many bitter frowns of providence. And what strikes me is that towards the end of his life, he told his nephew, Eustace, who later came to India as a missionary and wrote a biography of his uncle. Um, and I'm just summarizing this, but Carrie said, if you want to say that I did anything well, tell them that I plotted. Mm. And just the imagery, his whole life was one of plotting. If we could also use Bunyan's imagery, Carrie was plotting towards the celestial city. Yeah. And that plotting had a lot of twists and turns, a lot of deaths. Um, Difficult family relationships, starting with his wife. Um, and I think sometimes that she gets a a bad rap, unfortunately, and it was that that would be a whole discussion for another time, but i but I think that she endured much as well for the sake of the gospel and should be commended for that. But Carrie watched children die. Um, you know, you talked about the separation. Carrie left England. In 1793, he died in 1834. He never went back to England, never went back. And as he was there ministering, you watch him receive the news over the years of all of his close friends, close pastor friends, like Andrew Fuller, uh, dying and, and passing away. And, and the reality that said in, he made the comment, he was very much urged to go back to England in the 1820s. By several of the Baptists, and he basically said, "There's, I don't feel like there's much of a point for me to go back." He said, "I would have to begin anew with friendships because all of his close friends had passed away, mm. and just all of the the loss that he experienced in his life, um, and yet, for all of that, he just kept plotting forward. He just kept moving forward. And he had a love, a love for people, for the people of God. That's you know." One thing that's underappreciated about Kerry is his pastoral ministry he had in England before he went to India. He pastored two different churches and and very much poured his heart into shepherding those people. And one thing that I'll share that's fascinating is the second church that he was at was a little bit more prominent than the first one. And they, uh, it was the Harvey Lane Church in Leicester, England. And they did not want their pastor to leave because the Lord had used him in a great way. Mm. Um, but after he left and he's there in India and there's not a conversion and baptism of an Indian for seven years, a long time. Wow. And yet one of the reports that he got back from England was about how revival was taking place in the British Baptist churches due to Kerry and the others who had left, including hearing of the number of conversions that had happened at Harvey Lane since he had left. Mm. And Carrie finding strength and a renewed zeal that even though at that moment in India he was not seeing any fruit, what he was doing was bearing fruit back in England mm. and that God was using it. And so I just think that that Carrie's life, his his ministry, and his understanding of being just a an ordinary pastor, a cobbler not anything really what the world would say was special, but God using in a great way, but also just a testimony of perseverance in the midst of a lot of adversity. So I would say I I would highly recommend if I can go ahead and recommend two books. Um, The first one would be it's entitled William Carey and it's written by Carey's great grandson S Pierce Carey. I finished it up um, last week. Now, As a historian, or let me me phrase it, as an amateur historian, Mm. it is frustrating when somebody does not do footnotes or sources, and that's how a lot of old biographies are done, and this is kind of an example of that. But it's very well that you can see that S. Pierce did did his homework, but it's a really good read. You really feel like you're walking with William Carey through all of this. Now, it's a little long. If you want to start shorter, I highly recommend Michael Haken's William Carey and the Missionary Fellowship of Friends that's a part of Ligonier's The Long Line of Godly Men series. That came out in the end of 2018, okay. and it's a its a shorter read, and it's its really good. I would highly recommend both of those. Haken is an introduction, and then the S. Pierce Carey if you want to dive in deeper.
0: Okay, cool. I love, I love the William Carey uh, uh, quote on plotting. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I think there are very few phrases that that summarize the Christian life, but also pastoral ministry—the way that that does. You know, we in our world today there are so many um, stories of of extravagance in preaching, extravagance in pastoral ministry, but those are really not the true moments. Um, the true moments are like that that, that just continuous plotting through the Christian life. I mean, you know, we, we do the same thing pretty much every week. I mean, we meet with members of our congregation, we pray for them, we disciple them, we prepare to preach the word, we preach the word, we gather together on the Lord's day. And it's that, it's that faithful plotting that really does make disciples. Um, and and not only makes disciples, but then even the, the last thing that I think is so, so valuable from Carrie's life is remembering that, uh, that we are either sowers or waterers, but it's God who gives the growth. Um, as he went back as he was in India and he's hearing about this revival, I think that a lot of us could be predisposed to depression in that, that we're not partaking in it. Uh, it Yes, I would.
1: Yeah, I would agree. And I would even say about hearing, I mean, even about after you, you know, when I read that, I started thinking to myself, hearing about the church you used to be at and that they're prospering and growing with you gone. And, you know, that, that could be easy to to build up some resentment if yeah. if, if one was not careful. And and I appreciate you saying that part about we're either, you know, we, we, sow or we, or we, we may, you know, we may be the ones who put the seed in the ground and somebody else may be the ones who are given the the, the fruit, so to speak. And Carrie felt that way. And um, one of his, uh, journal entries, he, he he pours his heart out and he said, you know, maybe it's, it's the Lord's will that the reason I'm here is to prepare the ground and somebody else will come to India and, you know, will see the harvest. And you're right. That's, that, that's not an easy, that's not an easy posture to take. You, You will not, you will not arrive there apart from the spirit sanctifying and working in you because that goes against everything in our our, our nature um, by birth. You know, we want we do the work. We expect that we want to see visibly the the the, the reward and the the fruit of, of our labors right now. And, and and Kerry came to a point. I'm not 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 saying at all that was an easy point to get to, but that he was like, well, maybe maybe the reason we're not seeing anything here in India is because that's that's not what God's called me for is to actually see any fruit it's it's to lay the groundwork for somebody else to come
0: yeah yeah and that's that's just it's a hard place to get to but praise god when we get there because i think at that point we it it perhaps is a more full understanding of who we are and the work (laughs) that we do right like at the end of the day it, it is just it is just a clear demonstration that it's god who saves it's God who revives. It's God who gives life, and and the fact that He invites us into that in any capacity is just of grace. And man, what a what a sweet mission that He does give that we have the the joy of plotting. I mean, otherwise we're just we're we're just, we're, we're, we're plotting. We're just plotting a different direction to our death. But by His grace, He invites us into a faithful plotting, as you mentioned earlier, to the celestial city, um, and seeing uh, the God who rescues made much of in the process. And so. Yeah, that's sweet. I had a couple other things that I was thinking about as you were talking. One of the things that we at Mercy Hill have aimed for, um, and uh, and it it seems a bit obscure um, today, but I don't think that historically it was obscure. Which is a deep uh, level of community, and I don't mean community in that like millennial sense. I mean community that you find in Scripture where there's genuine fellowship, love for one another, that it's regular that you find yourself eating at a member of your congregation's table, that uh, the fellowship we have is not rooted in something uh, temporary, but it's rooted in the, the person and work of Christ. We're aiming to see that unity displayed in our daily interactions with one another. Um, how have you, I mean, especially, and even, you know, maybe there's a um, a way to connect, how how the revitalization took place inside of the congregation that you, that you pastor and building that community in, you know, what, what, what were some things that you made sure to, to highlight as you talked about that community and, um, and, and what are some doctrines that you think dramatically affect, uh, the community that we have or the the fellowship that we have with one another? Well, I think that,
1: I think that having really, it begins with what is your ecclesiology or your understanding of the church? And I I would say that for, if I were to look at it in a big picture, when you're talking about historically, what makes Baptist Baptist? The understanding of covenant theology from a Baptistic standpoint is both soteriological, how do we understand how we are saved in a covenant sense, but it's also connected then with how do we view the church as this visible covenant community. I would say that for us at New Testament, when I really, so this would be when I first discovered Nine Marks and all of their materials and everything that they taught and then, as I was becoming more familiar with the the Second London Confession and historic Baptist theology, especially in the in the seventeenth century, how these individuals were wrestling with understanding the church and they were doing so not from a place of luxury or leisure but in the fires of persecution, that they really understood that what it meant to be a church transcended just one hour on a Sunday morning Mm. that it went beyond that. So when we start understanding what it means, for example, that we are a covenant people, we have been called out by the spirit of God. We're a gift from the father to the son. We're caught up in all of this inner Trinitarian communion. And then in a local church, we come together and worship and fellowship. We, you know, I think about in 2015, June of 2015, July 2015, was when we ratified uh, our statement of faith and church covenant. And I had been previously at a Nine Marks Weekender, up there in DC at Capitol Hill with, with Mark Dever and his, and his church family. And so when I came back and, and worked through some things, we, we came to this point that I asked that everybody come forward and sign their name on this document that they agreed to the, the statement of faith. This is what we believe and the church covenant. Now this is how we will live out those beliefs. And I can just vividly see it in my mind watching, uh, an alphabetical order the, the members come forward and assign their names. And every time that we have new members come in that process uh, of them going through membership class and then culminating in a members meeting of them coming forward and signing their name, that it really puts it. So to speak on, pe- well, it does on paper, you know, we're in this together. Mm-hmm. And then I, I have a lot of credit I have to give to uh, my other elder. At New Testament, Harry Scoville, who really was encouraging me to us think about trying to do fellowship lunch weekly at the church. Now, not everybody can stay, and it's not mandated or anything like that, but probably for the most part, every member of the church, at least one or two Sundays a month, is there for a fellowship lunch, and it's between services, and it's a time where we talk about what we've studied that morning, what are we reading through the week, what, what are we struggling with, It's times we have counseling opportunities, and, and just hearing how things are going in life. Now, we're a little bit spread out as far as geographically where all the members are, um, so that does present some challenges at times as to everything we could try to do during the week. But, I mean, it is very common. Our, our ladies, for example, they're always using some kind of app to stay in touch. Um, We have women's studies. We have men's studies that we try to do. um, Doing different things where we, and we enjoy spending time with each other. It's not forced. It's not fake. I've been in church my whole life and I know what the norm is. And the norm was always, as soon as you said, dismiss, you got in the vehicle and you were on your way to Cracker Barrel or Golden Corral or wherever else you were going to get in line. And the parking lot would be empty in five to ten minutes, yeah, and that's not that that's a that's a club meeting, yeah. but for a church gathering for what it means to be together, to do things to to actually enjoy seeing each other during the week when you can and have opportunity. Um, and so I would just say for me it was it was I would say understanding sovereign grace and salvation. Getting a good understanding of both covenant theology and then the aspect of adoption, yeah. which is a part of salvation that sometimes gets overlooked. And then just ecclesiology of actually understanding what it means to be a local communion of believers that have covenanted to Christ and to one another. I, I would then add even, you know, having a better understanding of the Lord's Supper, for example, oh, man. how that ties in and and just you know the joy i grew up in a context where we did it once a year and a handful of people came to it mm. um and, and now you know just seeing how the lord uses the 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 supper to teach us again it's it's emphasizing this covenant relationship we have vertically and horizontally
0: mm. yeah i mean i think pretty much everything you mentioned there the the three the three major ones for me is understanding the doctrine of adoption. There was a moment. There was a moment in my life where that became just wildly apparent to me. And I'm looking around the local church and realizing that the you know we use language like brother and sister. Yes. But I don't think most people understand what they're saying.
1: Correct. It's just well, a southern thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, There's too many. Yeah. And and I and I am guilty. I'm incredibly guilty of the Christian bro because I don't know your name. Um, <laughs> just- But, but when I, but when I look at the congregation that meets at Mercy Hill, like when I, when I call them brothers and sisters, and that's actually how I start pretty much every email I send to them, like, and there's, there's such comfort in that, that I'm, I'm not emailing or having a conversation with or, 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 uh, or, or walking through life with a stranger who I will never see again. Um, I'm walking through life with brothers and sisters who will be with me around the throne eternally. Um, and that, that adds such joy in meeting together here when we meet in light of what's to come. And the other thing you said that I just think is so important. So I grew up in a, in a context where the Lord's supper was had once every quarter, which is, which is relatively normal. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and one of the questions I got when we moved the Lord's table to once a, once a month, and we don't do it every week, we do it once a month. Um, was someone asked me, "Do you think that it's going to lose its uh, its meaningfulness?" Um, and, and I'll be honest, I responded, that I think it already has lost its meaningfulness because if we if we do it once a quarter, what we're saying is it's really not that valuable. Um, at least at least to me, and, and my and doing it more frequently has emphasized the beauty of the Lord's table, and frankly, how it does permeate into a a ton of different areas of the Christian life. Like I find myself using the Lord's table as an illustration, uh, in a sermon so frequently now. Um, normally when I'm talking about the unity we have together, uh, considering what's to come, I mean, all of the things that the Lord's table sets forth, um, the covenant that we are in, you know, all of those uh, are just highlighted in that relationship that we see, uh, you know, visually and even taste at the Lord's table. Um, and then, and then the last thing that you just you brought up was just the concept of a fellowship together in a way that is uh, that's loving. Uh, that it is impossible for us to say that we love Christ without deeply loving the brotherhood. Amen. and and you know, I just I, I remember I remember the day that this all clicked in my head and thinking I have missed a part of the Christian life. And because we're so uh, individualistic we miss the beauty of uh, of the congregation of seeing the body of Christ at work we all I think I think a lot of Christians run around thinking they're a body in and of themselves and that's just not true um, anyway, yes and you're, yeah. you're,
1: you're right and you're right and and something to, uh, jump on two things that you said there number one that's one of the things that I shared we did our first sunday wide zoom meeting sunday evening and I, I i really mean it i mean the people at new testament baptist church are my family yeah they're my family and it is very hard right now in that sense of being separated from my family mm-hmm. and i don't know i i think that you're right when you we, we become so individualistic and this is not this is not original to me this is from michael haken an excellent church historian and specifically particular Baptist historian. He was on a podcast on the theme of biblical spirituality a few months back, and he made a statement that I've not forgotten, and it ties into what we've been talking about, is he said, if you ask most evangelicals today, how are they spiritually or how would they judge their spirituality? He said it would be, they would base it on their, quote-unquote, quiet time. He was not diminishing devotional reading and prayer. That's important. We need to be in the scriptures and praying. But he said, if you were to ask an evangelical, and then he said, if you were to ask a a Baptist uh, 200 or 300 years ago, what was the mark of their spirituality? Their answer would be the Lord's Supper. Mm. That would be their response. Because it was done more frequently, number one. And number two, it highlighted the importance of what you're saying is that while our faith is in a sense, in, we are individuals. Yes, we have personal growth. We have personal battles, but we're a part of a community. We're a part of an assembly. We're a part of a family and the Lord's supper reminds us as we partake of this one bread and one cup, that we are a people joined together. Mm-hmm. And that's why he said they would, and their understanding of Christ is present, He's ministering to us by faith as we come and partake, and we've lost so much of that because we are we are we all we always have to battle individualism because we're fallen creatures. But even in our culture and context, even more so, that is such a, a drive about me, 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 and my autonomy and freedom mm-hmm. of failing to see the beauty. And I would say, I mean, that's that's the riches we have in Baptist history of understanding biblical congregationalism and all of those things about how we are in this together. It's, it's not one person. It's not a a group of five. It's all of us together in this as a church family.
0: Yes. All all, all of what you just said. Um, so, so important. Um, all right, well, we're, we're running out of time, but I want to hit a couple more things. Number one, because I I never, I never get to talk about this. Um, because I'm, I'm always letting somebody else talk about it, but but, I'll, but I want to talk about it with you. So let's talk about preaching. Um, okay. How has, knowing the kind of the background that your church came from, you know, you were raised, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were raised at New Testament when it was a KJV-only fundamentalist church, yes?
1: Yes, that's correct.
0: Okay, so um, since then, the church is now a confessional um, confessional, I, 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 your your confessions, New Hampshire, yeah. For yeah, we, we use the
1: new, we knew New Hampshire for the congregation and the 1689 for elders.
0: Yeah. Okay. okay. So, how has your understanding of preaching and uh, changed from what you grew up under to what you now do, uh, and how have you seen the preaching of the word affect the congregation? How. Okay. I know. Well, I, I, I know yeah. it's so much. Let me, let me
1: say this. I'll, I'll say this. The, the only way that I can explain personally and then corporately how we got from where we were to where we are now is rooted in expositional preaching.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, everything changed for me personally when I was first introduced to expository preaching. And when I started listening to expository preaching, I was just baffled because it was unlike anything that I'd ever heard growing up. And I was starting to see how the Bible fit, how it made sense, how it was destroying, um, traditions that I had heard and, and been raised in. So really for me personally, the way that I transitioned out of King James only ism the way that I came to the doctrines of grace. Um, all of that was rooted in expository preaching just to be, you know, as as brief as I can be on that. And then by being committed to preaching verse by verse, I I would say, I will say that even in that course I've grown in, in, in better understanding. For example, what do we mean when we say that that Christ and redemption is the scope of scripture, Uh, how Scripture interprets Scripture, how do we see all of Scripture tied together. Uh, Yes, there are 66 books, but there's really one book. And yes, there are many different human authors, but there's one divine author. Um, Understanding covenant theology, I mean, that's radically changed how I understand the Bible. So there's been a lot of growth, I would say, in my own understanding of biblical exposition. But I would just say, look, as I was preaching through verse by verse, through books of the Bible, the Lord changed. I mean, I was preaching through First John, was in First John 2, 1 and 2, and preached particular redemption. Mm. And that Sunday evening, which is my practice, is always to have Q&A afterwards. I wanted somebody to ask me a question about how I had preached the atoning work of Christ that morning, because I'd never preached it like that. And I had a dear sister say she found it rich and was encouraged by it. And I praised God for that positive response. And I told the church that I thought I was a Calvinist because that's what I preached that morning. I didn't know everything. So let's just learn together. Um, there was only a handful of us. And I know that that's the exception, not the norm to how that works in most pastors and churches. But, you know, that's what we've tried to do. I've tried to always bring it back to what does the text say? What does the Bible say? I believe in confessions, I believe in creeds, I believe in catechisms, I believe they're vitally important. We use them in our preaching and teaching, but I always want to make sure that it's clear that we're gonna start with what does the scripture say and understand the word of God. So when we've had some difficult moments and we've had some trials, I didn't go to the Bible then because I didn't know what else to do, there would be a problem if that was the case. If I did a lot of other stuff, but then we got in a real crisis, I went and grabbed the Bible, yeah. you know, there would be a right question to say, well, why are you bringing the Bible into this now? You didn't hear there. But because this was the staple and this is what we we're doing, that when we were in those crisis and we looked at what the scriptures say, the Lord brought us through it. Um, so I, I would just say that the story of us as a church, of myself personally and us as a church corporately, is rooted in the way that God used sequential exposition in our lives.
0: Yeah, I, just there really is nothing that has that impacts any local church or any person like exposition of the word. Yeah. I just To me, it is a, it is a living demonstration of Sola Scriptura. It says, this is what we believe. This is how this is played out. And so, and this may be an an overly dogmatic statement, but if you walk up to me and you tell me that you believe in the doctrine of Sola Scriptura and you are, and you preach on a regular basis, but you don't preach through books of the Bible, I'm immediately going to call into question whether you believe Sola Scriptura or not. Um, and the reason I say that I, that, I know that's somewhat hyperbolic, but the reason I say that is because if I, if I don't devote myself to exposition of scripture in a sequential fashion, I, it's so easy for me to, to rely on my own cleverness. Um, or it's so easy for me to rely on a fad or something of that nature. But when I lock myself into the scripture in a way of saying, hey, we're going to walk this book, it means that I don't get to dodge Any doctrine that God has so pleased to reveal to us, I don't don't get to dodge them. I I have to deal with them, Um, and so uh, and I think it's just a way that God molds not only His church but His men as well. Um, And uh, and so anyway, that's just something that I that I've been thinking about lately. Um,
1: No, I would agree. I would just add, I would agree. If if you if you're going to say that you believe the Bible is infallible, inspired, and inerrant. But you really do not preach it, you do not preach it the way that it's laid out, you don't use the hermeneutics that are within the scriptures itself, then what do you? I think that by your practice, you, you demonstrate what you actually believe. Yeah. And by practice, you really don't believe the Bible is what you claim it is. And I'll add this too, as well as that the way that you preach and handle the Word of God week in and week out, you are teaching the Mm -hmm. flock, how to read and understand their Bible. If you're always trying to be, as you said, clever or following whatever is the latest trend, then it's almost like, in in my perspective, you begin to make the flock almost view you like a, a Roman priest. They are dependent on you and you alone to be able to know what in the world Is actually truth or what's coming out of the Bible Protestant pastors and ministers historically are supposed to preach and teach in such a way as we are showing our our congregations that yes this is how you can search and dig the scriptures during the week and so yes there's gifting and all that stuff I totally believe in that but this is not some you know Gnostic inside knowledge that only a handful of us as, as as clergy have. Uh, this is what all the people of God have. but we all have the Holy Spirit, and we have His Word, and we're yeah. and we're charged to be teaching them and modeling for them how to yeah. read and understand their their Bibles.
0: Yeah, yeah, most certainly. And I think I think a lot of the reason that so, pardon my conspiracy theory, but I think I think many. Pastors stopped teaching this way because it is a challenge uh, it is to have a congregation who knows their Bibles. Um, and, and what I mean by that is you, the if someone were to walk into Mercy Hill and preach uh, on Sunday morning, something that is untrue um, because the saints there do, they know their Bibles. They, they read their Bibles. They study, they've grown, they're constantly growing in grace. And I praise God for that. It's a work of the spirit, but, but you walk in Mercy Hill, and I would imagine this is true of the New Testament as well, that if somebody walks in the door and preaches something that's untrue, uh, the congregation immediately knows it. There's there's no skirting around half-truths or even uh, not, not knowing or teaching what is accurate. Uh, the congregation immediately knows that. And I think that a lot of pastors um, have have taken a back seat and said, you know, if I just, if I fill my congregation's head with, with, with tidbits of, uh of, you know, smiley good stories or something like that, then if I mess up, they'll never know. Um That's not, that's not faithful shepherding. Faithful shepherding says, I want you to know the true and better shepherd and know him so well that if anyone ever stands up here and says something that is contrary to what he has revealed, immediately red flags go up, that you can discern what is good and what is true from what is false and a lie. Um, and, uh, and so I just, I, the beauty of, of expository preaching is I think not only does it uh, prepare them to, to, to know the, the half-truth from the full truth, but it also shows them that, man, they go home, they study the scriptures like you just mentioned in the way that we exposit them, they're going to come to the same conclusions we do.
1: Yes, and I would say, too, I I think that's totally right. And while we have a responsibility as the men who fill the pulpits to accurately handle the Word of God, the New Testament is also very clear that ultimately a a congregation is responsible for the doctrine that is being taught and proclaimed. And so they need to know what's true and what's error so that if error is being proclaimed, they do their task of removing that error, number one. Yeah. And I would add, two to kind of tie back to what we were talking about earlier with, with William Carey, I think as well as that a commitment to biblical exposition is a commitment to probably what I would say is going to be slower growth. Now, the Lord yeah. can use expository ministries and uh, there be uh, major growth in a short period of time, but for the most part, if, if a church is committed to seeking to be a biblical church and the pulpit is committed to sequential exposition, it's usually going to be slower growth. I mean, that's, I would say that for us. I mean, it was, it has been slow, but there's been steady growth and the Lord has blessed and been kind to us. We're so much wanting the quick and fast and easy, but the most time growth that happens quickly, um, it doesn't last
0: because I I always say it's
1: fake. Yeah. It, because it, because it it comes up, it's, it's, it comes up quick, but it will pass quickly Mm -hmm. as well, unless you come up with something new and redefine yourself. Um, but I I try to think the best advice that give men is found in, in Andrew Fuller. He said, these are the two chief things that a pastor does. He does expository preaching and he does, um, we would put it this way, would be his doctrinal teaching. Mm-hmm. He preaches verse by verse through the word of God, and then he teaches the great doctrines. He teaches theology uh, to the congregation as well. And so both of those things really need to be present in the pulpit ministry of a church
0: and a pastor. Yes and amen. Um, you know, the... It seems as though the Lord always, what he grows, what he grows slow, he grows deep. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and so it's such a, it's such a joy to be able to, to preach in a way that that is dependent upon the spirit of God growing, growing slow. Most of the time, every so often he grows rapidly and deep, but I do find that those times are more rare. Um, but the beauty of expository preaching is going, even going back to the concept of it being a demonstration of your belief in Sola Scriptura, it's also a demonstration of your belief in the, the success, the infallible success of the scriptures, uh, to do what God has determined them to do that when the word of God goes out, there is a purpose, whether that purpose be, this is what we often forget is whether that purpose be judgment or salvation he is going to fulfill his purpose. Um, and so that's just, that's just the, the beauty of preaching. Sorry, I, I, love, I love to talk about that with guys who, who love the exposition of the word. Um, all right, last quick question, and then, we'll, and then we'll close it up. So what book have you preached through that was most impactful to you? Not the congregation at large. I know that might be the same thing, but that impacted you the most.
1: Hmm. I would probably say personally would be 2 Samuel. Interesting. Because it was the hardest book I've actually preached through. Mm. I, would, I just finished Ecclesiastes, and as challenging as Ecclesiastes was, the reason that I would say 2 Samuel was the most impactful for me is, number one, there are some of the, the richest images of Christ and the gospel in the Old Testament are in that book. Yeah. From the covenant promise made to David, to David and Mephibosheth. Oh, man. I, I tell people, if you can't preach Second Samuel 9, if you can't preach that well, then you aren't called. Go home. Just, you know, <laughs> yeah, go home. <laughs> um, I mean, if you can't preach David and Mephibosheth and preach, you know, the beauties of grace and Christ and all of that glorious truth, then you, you're not called. But the reason that it was challenging for me was uh, first of all, was was this a season of, of ministry and life for myself. And that when you get to chapter 11 with David and Bathsheba, mm. that is how the rest of the book is interpreted It's through that event. You will not, you won't escape second Samuel 11, the rest of the book, which made it very challenging but also convicting to, to teach me and to show me because that's just a little bit right after David and Mephibosheth. So, and the covenant promise and that there is no day that we can take off Yeah, as Christians. And then specifically as pastors that we must be diligent and on guard and that God does forgive and he is merciful, but that there are consequences to sin and that we need to be vigilant. and And I would just say it was a, you know, you even get to the end of the book, I don't know exactly what the measurement of time would be after all of that's passed, but you but you go into, it's chapter 23, and at the end of chapter 23, when the list of David's mighty men are given, well, who's the last one? It's Uriah the Hittite, who's dead, but there's that constant reminder of just how significant uh, those events were, and it all started because, in many ways, like we are right now, David had we would say time on his hand. Yeah. And he didn't use his time wisely. And so I would say, personally, just for where I was at personally in my own life when I was preaching through that book and in ministry, and just how the Lord used that. It's the most challenging book, especially from the second half of it to preach, but that God has used in my own life to reflect upon. So
0: awesome. Great, great answer. I was surprised. I fully expected you to answer Hebrews. Um, Well, I would say, well,
1: if you wanted to, if you wanted for the congregation, I would say that from a congregation standpoint, I think Hebrews would rank up there because it really gave me the opportunity in a, a sequential expositional format to highlight what I've tried to teach in some thematic ways about hermeneutics and covenant theology. So I would say in the life of us as a church, yes, Hebrews, but I would say personally Second Samuel. Interesting. Although yeah. although I would say I'm very well, proud's the wrong word to use, but I don't know what else to say. Um, you know, going through Matthew, that was nearly four years. And that was an interesting journey. When I got finished with it, I wanted to go back and re preach the first seven chapters. Oh uh, so, I did. I did, yeah. Man, did I feel well. that. So,
0: I finished. I, we spent about two and a half years in John, and uh, I want to. I want to do another half, which is where I go back and preach chapter one, two, and three. Four is where I really started to to I think get the get the gist of John a bit mm-hmm. more fully. But I'm telling you, you can read a book thirty, forty, fifty times, and you're like, "All right, I got a handle on this," and then you go and you begin to preach through it, and you're like, "Oh, I didn't." Like, I, I, you know, as you're walking through it, it's it's just you see more and more and more. And it's just it's just a a beautiful thing. The inexhaustibility of the scriptures. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jake, thanks so much for uh, for doing this with me. Um, I, I make I make no plans to continue doing these things, but it's just something to, as you said, occupy my time well. Um, and hopefully, give something to the congregation that will be encouraging to uh, to them. I'll I'll have it up in the next couple of days. And uh, and anyway, thanks again for joining me.
1: Appreciate you having me on. Enjoyed it thoroughly.